Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Good evening. My name's Claire. I'll be reading the Bible for us tonight. Um, the first reading is from Isaiah chapter 60, and it's verses 1 to 3. And if you're using your pew Bibles, it is on page 602. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your dawn. The next reading is from Romans 13, verses 8 to 14, and it's on page 923 of your pew Bibles. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does not wrong to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us live honourably as in the day, not reveling in drunkenness and not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarrelling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, now, just in case you don't know, um, there's a, when we say this is the word of the Lord, because that's not on the screen, is it, right? And so there's some secret knowledge which I'm going to let you into. So this is if you're like one of those summit Christians. Okay? So someone says this is the word of the Lord, and you say back, thanks be to God. Should we try that? No, no, we got that. Thanks be to God. Now, what's really interesting is you read out a really weird and freaky passage from Scripture, and then someone at the end of that says... This is the word of the Lord. And the people of God say back, yep, thanks be to God. We're going to work with this. Anyway, so that's that. That's a secret bit of knowledge. And so now you too can join Claire at the summit. Uh, what happens when God's mercies to you in Jesus Christ fill your vision and flood your heart and form your soul? What happens to you? That's the question that the Apostle Paul is answering in this whole section of the letter to the Romans. 
having set out and described those mercies in all their power and captivating glory in the first 11 chapters. And his answer to that question is as simple as it is profound as it is challenging. Here's what happens when God's mercies fill you up. You give your all, body and soul, every thought, word and deed, all your doings and all your refrainings to do, you give everything back to God, echoing his giving his all to you. Or the way the apostle puts it in the start of this section, in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, you offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. This is how we worship, he says. Not the occasional worship from time to time in the temple by offering dead sacrifices. That's how God's people in the old covenant used to worship God. Animal sacrifices. No, no, no. Now it's the joy and the adventure of every moment, every day, all you are and do offered to God. That's what worship is. That's what may is made over to him for his use and his joy. And as you do this, it's wholly and acceptable to him. It's welcomed by him. He approves of it. He pumps his fist at you. Yes, that's awesome. Now, there is a, a newness to this. There's a bit, it's a bit of a kind of a, a right-hand turn for, for God's people to live like this. this. This is the newness of the new covenant in Jesus' blood succeeding the old covenant to Israel, and Paul recognises this newness. And, and what that's going to mean uh, to live this whole-of-life worship, uh, Paul describes as being not conformed to this world, literally not conformed to this age, this time period, this age outside of Christ. The, the word here that the apostle uses uh, for conformed is literally schematized. So, so the apostle says, um, th this age, this world has a pattern. It's got a set of architectural drawings, a, a, a way that things work and happen and are connected, a set of priorities and values and norms that together you put them all together and they form what you might call a schema, a mould. And it's constantly trying to press you into this mould to catechise you, to schematize you to form you as one of its own. And the apostle says that what it's going to take to resist that, to, to give yourself in worship of all you are and do over to the living and true God is nothing short of utter and total transformation. Instead of being schematized to the likeness of this age, he says, he says, be metamorphized, literally. Be metamorphized. Transform. Be a butterfly. You know, right, butterflies? I... I Biology is not my strongest suit. In fact, it might actually be my weakest suit. Be a little butterfly that has emerged into the glory and beauty of flight out of a sluggish, ugly, squishy, tread-on-them caterpillar. Okay? Don't, no. Fly. Soar. Is this working for you? That's the difference, the apostle says, between the new age in Jesus Christ and the age apart from Christ. And chapters 12 and 13, which we're looking at um, over this last week, uh, chapter 13, follow a bit of a V-shape. They go out and then they come back in like this. On the outside tips of the V-shape is this idea of a schematizing world, the age 
that is now past because Jesus Christ has come. It's here in verse 2 of chapter 12, and then it's again at the end of chapter 13. There the image is modified a little bit. It's about the dawning of a new day, a kind of classic old-to-new meme. And then Paul talks about relationships because how we conduct our relationships uh, is, uh, shows what schema we're operating from most clearly. And in verses, uh, chapter 12, verses 3 to 16, Paul talks about relationships in here, in the church, among sisters and brothers in Christ, one another, and he does again the same in chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. And, and then right in the middle of the schema, right, so we start with this idea of the age, top and bottom. In the middle, it's about relationships in here amongst Christian brothers and sisters. And in the middle of the V, he talks about relationships out there. Because even though we don't have the same shape as the world, we still live in the world. And when that round hole tries to make us square pegs fit in and starts jamming us down, guess what? It hurts. There's pain, often. The pain of having evil done to you. And therefore the challenge of not repaying evil with evil. Because of course, that would be to be schematized to the world, right? But instead the apostle says, you hold back, you allow room, you make space for God, for the wrath of God. He'll look after things, including what we looked at last week, which is God's wrath through his public servant deacons and governing authorities. And now we come, we've gone down the, the V down here in chapter 12, now we come in 13, at the end of 13, to the return side of the V, and Paul revisits how we metamorphize relationships in here amongst Christian sisters and brothers, and at the same time, he puts that in the context of the new day that's dawning, the age to come that is broken in Jesus Christ. So two points. Firstly then, a new schema for relationships. Now, of course, uh, because he, on the way out, Paul already laid out the brief uh, kind of staccato picture of the texture of our relationships. He says beautiful words in chapter 12. We belong to one another. And so we're to use the gifts that we've been given for the benefit of each other. He says, let love be genuine. He says, hate what is evil. It's very interesting. Christians, you've got to be a hater as well as a lover. Hater's going to hate. And you're supposed to hate. You're supposed to hate what is evil, especially in yourself. Hate it and get rid of it. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, extend hospitality to strangers, weep with those who weep, don't tell them to cheer up. Right? Sit with them, cry with them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, don't tell them to calm down. Get pumped with them. Don't be haughty or arrogant, but associate with the lowly. And, and so on, it's this lovely sort of staccato, boom, 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 boom. And now as he comes in the return journey of the V, he sums it up simply by saying, verse 8, owe no one anything. Don't be, don't be in debt to people. Don't have unpaid debts with people. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the obvious reason, you see, that's, a, that's a, an obligation, a debt that we can never extinguish. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Two things just to unpack that a little bit. The first is what is love? And the second is, why is Paul so concerned to show that love is the fulfilling of the law? So first then, what is love? Now, when it comes to love, there's a way in which uh, you, you might say, look, Andrew, there's no point. Get, get on with the sermon. We don't have to talk about what love is. We all know what love is. It's intuitively obvious what love is. Except that 
don't you think there might just be a danger that your intuitions have been schematized to this age, possibly? Just a little bit? Which is why it's crucial to get that love for the Christian gospel always finds its foundation in God. And that for God, love is not only something that God does, but it's something that God is. Love is not accidental or external to God. It's what constitutes the very being of God. The Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father in the power and the joy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you and I know what it is to act out of character. Uh, a really gentle person explodes in anger. A really clever person makes an incredibly dumb decision that's acting out of character. My favourite acting out of character story is playing golf with a friend who's a really lovely guy. Graham's his name. Gentle giant. Bad day. Missed putt broken club don't go anywhere near him really angry but he's such a sweet guy acting out of character God never acts out of character his acts and his being never diverge from one another famously of course John the apostle uh, puts it very straightforward. He says, God is love. God is love. And because God is love, not just does loving things, but God is love, it means that all his acts have, if you like, the colour of love, have the, the pigment of love embedded in them. And that includes his act of creation of the universe. I, I think it's difficult to grasp just how deeply we assume that the universe is just this kind of vast, morally inert place. It's just this enormous amount of cold, dead space with no value or meaning associated with it. And, and if there is any value or meaning, it's because we impose it. Do, do you see how that's such a, such a... That's an atheist view, actually. If God is love, and he's the creator, then the universe has a bias to it. It's got a bend. It's like a, a lawn bowls ball. You know, you've ever been lawn bowling? And, and you put that little the big circles on one side and the little circles on the other. It always goes that way. It always goes that way. It's got a bias in it. And the universe has a bias in it. It bends towards love. That's how it was created. And I mean, to not live in love is to resist that bend. It's to act unnaturally. You see, because nature, the way things were made by God, has his own character of love embedded in them. To, to act against love is to act in a destructive, decreation kind of way. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, you can't go against the grain of the universe and not expect to get splinters. There's an inbuilt moral reality to the world as God made it, it can't be avoided, it can only be pretended about. Love is right at the essence of this. So when Paul talks about, oh, no one anything except the dead of love, he's not, he's not at the outskirts here. He's not at the footnotes. This is the heading. Leads to the second thing, which is the definition of love. And I, I, the best thing I found about what love is and how to think about and conceive and, and lean into love is the Christian philosopher Eleanor Stump's book, Wandering in Darkness. It's actually a book about suffering. But of course, when you start to talk about suffering, suffering raises questions about how can a loving God allow suffering? And so she digs right into what love is. 
And, and she makes, I think, a really brilliant observation. She says that love has two components. I want you to really kind of take this on board, meditate on it, reflect upon it, and allow this to really inform your approach to this most fundamental of all Christian virtues, which is love. She says, love has these two components. The first is a desire for the good of another person. You want the good for the other person. And at the same time, second, a desire to be in union with the other person. Close to them. Connected to them. Blessing, union. They're good, connection. And both, she says, are crucial. Blessing without connection is just a kind of mere distant charity. Connection without wanting their good, can easily become coercive or even abusive. But but together, wanting the good for the other and wanting to be in union with them as appropriate, that the union, the nature of the connection will be different for spouses, say, uh, for example, as compared to a parent and a child or two friends or work colleagues. It'll, It'll be an appropriate union. But together, blessing and union are what constitute Love. That's what you see in the Garden of Eden narrative, right? God creates the man and the woman and blesses them. But he doesn't just bless them and then leave them to their own devices. Yeah, see you later, go on. Off you go. Now he comes searching for them in the cool of the day. There's not just blessing, there's love, which means there's fellowship as well. And what's really interesting about this definition of love is that it corresponds to the consequences of the failures of love. When we wrong someone, when we really hurt someone, we incur both guilt and shame. In a moral universe, what we experience in guilt is the recognition that the wrong that I've done deserves punishment, which is the opposite of blessing. And in a moral universe, what we experience in shame is the recognition that what I deserve is rejection, which is the opposite of union. which of course is exactly what we see in the garden as the man and the woman are both punished and excluded. And whether with each other or with God, the big question when you hurt someone is whether there is sufficient love, that is, whether there's sufficient desire to bless and desire to be in union with to overcome the guilt and the shame of the wrongdoing. And the Apostle Paul says, Oh, no one anything except this one thing, this love, this deep, burning, unquenchable desire for the other person's good and to be appropriately in union and connection with them. And then you're like God. You're like the very essence of God. Which leads to the second point. Why is he so concerned about how love operates in relation to the law? You know, he goes on and says, and love is the fulfilling of the law. Uh, Of course, it's important in the New Testament in general and in uh, Paul and in Romans in particular that uh, when you read the words law, the law doesn't mean the law of the land but the law of the covenant. It means the the law of the old covenant with Israel. And as we'll see through chapters 14 and 15, it turns out that the issues of the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant were raising enormous difficulties and challenges in Rome and are the crucial context in which this whole letter makes sense, in fact. But we'll get to more of that next week. For now, what I want to do is highlight the key word here, which is fulfilled, which is used in both verses 8 
and 10. And, and the word has here about it the sense of being full, filled to the brim and then some. We're, we're called to um, uh, love, to let love be genuine, ultimately because in himself God is love. If, if that's your schema, right, if that's the, the, the architectural pattern to your life, this kind of love, then what that means is that you'll go way past the law. You'll, you'll have an overflowing, overabundance of connection with other people, completely fulfilling the law to the brim, and then some. And you can see how it works. The laws that Paul mentions here from the Ten Commandments are the fundamental ways in which we are not to hurt a neighbour. Don't commit adultery, he said, which, of course, in a traditional society like ancient Rome was, was not just what we have come euphemistically to call an affair, a fling, but it was actually a social and financial and spiritual catastrophe. There are laws against murder and, and theft, which deprive someone of their life or property. And the prohibition on covetousness, which is to deprive them of their personhood as they become only an object to you. You objectify them. And the point is this, you see, it's possible to obey those commandments completely at a distance. Just leaving people alone. Just letting them live their lives as you live your life with no engagement at all. It's not seeking their good, just not killing them. It's not seeking to be united with them. It's just staying at a distance from them. And Paul says, no, you love. You you really love your neighbour? That's what you owe to each other. That's what we hear right alongside each other tonight. Owe to each other. Love one another. We owe taxes to the authorities, he says in the previous paragraph. Sure. We owe our hearts to one another. And when you do that, you'll leave the law in your dust. You'll be miles further ahead than the law. Because you're constantly working out what it is to bring good into other people's lives and to be connected to them appropriately. That's love. Which leads to the second point that Paul makes, the time. Because Paul plays the newness of being metamorphosed into spiritual sacrifices rather than being schematized into this age in a new chord in verse 11. Besides this, he says, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we've become believers. The night is far gone. The day is near. Uh, the, the start of this verse, besides this, is an over-reading. Uh, the, the, the sense here is more, and also this, not, not besides it, it's on, on top of this. In other words, what Paul says here is reinforcing what he's just said in the previous paragraph rather than contrasting. On top of this, right? not only because love is the fulfilling of law, but on, on top of this, there's another reason to owe no one anything other than the debt of love, to want and to work for their good and to be united to them. It's time. Now, uh, we're in the middle of a federal election, and so a little bit of a history uh, lesson for you here. There was a very famous election in 1972, back before most of you were born. And Gough Whitlam. I met Gough. I shook his hand, actually. That's why I'm so great. I shook Gough Whitlam's hand. He was the man that got in a famous election. He won the famous federal election for the Labor Party in 1972 on the slogan, It's time. Well, that's what Paul says. Gough knew the Apostle Paul. And Paul says, it's time. It's time. 
Uh, the image is a lovely one. Sometimes uh, when you go to bed early, I don't know if you've had this experience any time in the last little while, you go to bed early and you're not dead tired, it means that you can wake up both early and refreshed. Do you know what that's like? Imagine that, waking up both early and refreshed. So the apartment uh, where I live faces northeast and from the 13th floor balcony of our apartment, I've been up when the day breaks. So sometimes I wake up, it doesn't happen very often. I, my main spiritual gift actually is sleep. Um, but sometimes I wake up at five o'clock in the morning and it's dark and then, and then you just hang around for a little while and 15 or 20 minutes later it cracks open and the sun pushes its way up and then there's the first light of dawn and pretty soon the whole world goes awesome. Glorious orange and red and it's a bit like this. That's dawn. You, can, you can't quite see it. It's like the sun is falling down through the clouds onto the earth. It's dawn. It's fresh and it's powerful and it's strong and it's inspiring. And you know what to do next, right? You, you see that. You're... you're, you're you get up and you get dressed and you get going because the day is yours. So remember this picture, right? And the apostle takes that experience, he takes that kind of picture, that moment, and he says, that's where you're at, that's the time. This age, this, this world, it's, it's old, it's dark. The night's far gone. It's like five in the morning. The, the new age, when God is all in all, when God's kingdom, God's reign has come in all its fullness, when his works and his ways are celebrated and rejoiced in rather than resisted and resented, that new age is just over the horizon. And of course, you can see the connection between this paragraph, this image of, of the dawning day and the previous one, because the new age is when God is all in all, uh, or as one um, commentator put it, when, when God is everything to everyone. Imagine that. God is everything to everyone. Fills everything and everyone. And because God, remember, is love, what it means is that that new age that's dawning is painted the colour of love, God's colour. The, the equivalent of that gorgeous orange of dawn. And so as we anticipate that age, as we lean into it, as we, as we get up out of our beds and crane our heads forward to, to, to get a piece of it and connected with it, what that means is that we'll be doing what the previous paragraph talked about. We'll be leaning into love. Notice how the apostle develops the flip side of it, which is, is, is to, if you like, put off anti-love. Paul draws on our uh, intuitive, universal human sense of shame, uh, which means that pretty much all of the junk that happens in life, all of the bad stuff that we do, we do in the dark. Have you noticed that? All the crap happens in the dark, away from where people can see it hidden either in the natural darkness of night 
or the artificial darkness of secrecy. That's how you do the bad stuff in your life. It's in the dark. And just like the darkness of each night passes into the glorious daylight, Paul's saying the the moral darkness of this world is about to break. The light is breaking through. It's not here yet. Jesus is still to come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom then will have no end. But but now in this in-between time, this overlap of the ages, the not yet of the night still around us, but the already of Jesus having risen from the dead and the daytime as certain as it can possibly be, you know what to do. You get dressed. You put on your clothes, or as the apostle describes it, we lay aside the works of darkness, we take off our PJs, you're not going to walk, I mean, actually there may be some people here who would, but most of us would not walk around in our pyjamas in the daytime, right? That's just weird. And, and weird. Like, really, who would do that? And Paul says, get your pyjamas off and put on the armour of light. Put on your clothes, your, the clothes for the day. Your, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. And that will mean living honourably. Not in all that shameful stuff. Not in revelling and drunkenness. Um, uh, revelling and drunkenness. Unrestrained, uncontrolled self-assertion and self-absorption. That's what that's about. He says, get those pyjamas off you, that debauchery and licentiousness, uncontrolled use of others for your own pleasure. Get those clothes for nighttime off you, quarrelling and jealousy, uncontrolled domination over and putting down of others. It's not nighttime anymore. Don't wear those clothes. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put the clothes for the day on. You'll do it tomorrow. Physically. Paul says, do it spiritually too. And then he notice just right at the end, he closes it off and he says, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul knows that the shameful behaviors of darkness, the emotional and sexual excesses, the disregard for and stomping on others, is not just a failure of willpower. It's not just a bunch of bad decisions that we make. It's not even just a deficit of good habits. Now, when we do that stuff, it comes from somewhere deep and dark within us, from the desires of our hearts, what literally is epithumia, over-epithumia desires, the over-desires it's the word that the New Testament uses so many times to describe the sin that's behind the sin. The basic motivational structure that energizes and enables sin in the first place. That whole pattern of disparate cravings for things that we love and need and grasp after because we think that they will give us life. Drunkenness and carousing and immorality and arguing and asserting yourself. You, you don't do that because you hey, I'm... I really want to make a mess of my life. I think I'm going to go down that track. You think that that's going to make your life work. That whole structure, Paul calls the flesh. It's, It's his way of describing when the schema of the world has gotten in you. 
And the apostle says, give that whole thing. No provision. Literally, make no forethought of it. Don't even conceive of it as you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And why wouldn't you put on Christ? Why wouldn't you put off those crappy old clothes and put on the armour of life? After all, who is this Lord Jesus Christ? He's the one who lived in the day from all eternity. He himself was the very light of life. And he came to us. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite, his grace. He put on our flesh and then he put on our sin. He took into his own self our works of darkness. He who knew no sin, who for our sakes became sin and he plunged himself in denial. Do you, do you remember that first Good Friday? What happened on the first Good Friday? Do you remember? The sun was blackened. Darkness came over the whole earth for three hours and the night entered into him so that the day could enter into us. He endured the darkness so that we could wake up in the light. And as our hearts are filled with that love for us, as you know his grace to you, that glorious, epoch-altering love for you, you will let go one by one of the stupid, empty, feeble, miserable desires of the flesh. You won't need them anymore. You've got something so much more filling, so much more glorious, this grace, this joy. And you'll put on the Lord Jesus Christ in his holiness because he put on us in our sinfulness. So let's do some soul work. Uh, it may be this evening that you're failing in your debts of love to your neighbour. It may be that to your brother or sister in Christ there is resentment or bitterness or, or even worse, just outright hostility and disdain. You're just contemptuous of someone, maybe even in this room. Or maybe you're just happy with a calm, quiet, do-no-harm distance. Just shh. Don't come near me. We can stay at peace as long as we have nothing to do with each other. And the word of the apostle is this. Love one another. Love that person. Desire their good and desire to be connected. But it's not a bare word, it's not a mere command, it comes in a context. Because the only way you'll do that is to first know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for you. To feed on him, to fill your heart with him. Because then you'll have the spiritual strength to do the hard work of reaching out and connecting and possibly confessing and reconciling. Something as simple and something as immensely challenging as saying to that person, are we okay? And then starting a conversation. love one another. Or maybe that there's some area in which your life has become incontinent. Uh, perhaps literally, as the Apostle talks about here, in drunkenness, that 
that you just don't know anymore how to have one or two or three drinks. It's only and always more like five or ten or fifteen drinks. Maybe that you become sexually incontinent, that you're unable to control yourself. And that leaks out in lust and sexual immorality. Or maybe that you become emotionally incontinent. You're just cranky with others and quarrelling and jealousy and you pick fights because there's some deficit in yourself. And the word of the apostle to you this evening is this. Take your pyjamas off. Take off the clothes that make sense at night, but it's not night anymore. It's time. And so put on the armour of light. But again, it's not a bare word. It's not just a suck it up and try harder. It comes in a context because first you've got to know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for you. You've got to feed on Christ. You've got to fill your heart with Christ because then you'll have the spiritual strength to do the hard work of living honourably as in the day. Because, dear brothers and sisters, the light of Christ has dawned. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we lift our hearts to you in praise and wonder and joy and thanks and worship. Because you entered into our darkness in order to bring us into the light. You loved us and fulfilled the law and then some. And we pray that you would do your work in us tonight where there are points in our lives where these exhortations and instructions of the apostle really do touch and connect, where there are points of broken and fractured fellowship with others that's led to disengagement or disinterest, disconnection or disdain. Where there are ways in which we're still wearing the clothes of night. Fill us with your grace. Assure us of your deep, deep love and transform us to be those who live in your light. And we pray for your glory.